Inside a University of Toronto classroom, the walls are decked out with green, purple, and blue stickers, and the room is filled with colorful plastic furniture. It's the setting for an experiment that might just sound familiar. The young children in the experiment are given the one thing parents fear them looking at for too long, a tablet screen. In the center of the screen are pictures of people of all different races, some of whom are the child's age, some may be older. In the bottom right-hand corner are blue smiley faces, and in the bottom left-hand corner are blue frowny faces. Two sets of children are given instructions by the University of Toronto researchers. One group was told to tap the happy face when you see someone with your skin color, and tap the frowny face when you see someone with a different skin color. The second group was told the opposite. It's a test to measure, you guessed it, a child's implicit racial bias. And if you've been paying attention over the course of the last few episodes, the results won't surprise you. Young children show racial bias too. So, what can we do about it? Race doesn't limit you from anything. About I feel like they learn about race from, I'll, I teach them what you know about race. About who you are with somebody else that looks like you. And love who you to love themselves. This is In My Skin, a podcast about race and childhood. I'm Adam Flango. For the last three episodes, we've talked about bias, and specifically, we've looked into implicit bias, what it is, how it leads to children being punished in school, and how it affects how we relate to language. This is the final episode of our series on bias, and in it, we are going to look at how we can combat bias. The good news? There are a lot of resources out there for adults looking to examine and change their own biases. There are things like Project Implicit, which we mentioned back in episode one, Ohio State's Kerwin Institute, which has free implicit bias training modules online, racialequitytools.org, which has a collection of all sorts of implicit bias trainings. These are important, and I encourage everyone to check them out. But all this research into changing the biases of adults got me wondering, what would happen if we could intervene in a child's life before they become a biased adult? Luckily, I found someone who has been researching that question for years. Her name is Miao Qian, and she's the researcher who conducted that experiment we talked about at the beginning of the episode back in 2018. I'm very interested in understanding scientifically the origins of people's racial biases. Uh, specifically, I'm very interested in how implicit racial bias first emerged and what's the earliest uh, manifestation of implicit racial bias and uh, some of the factors that affect the development of implicit racial bias. And the end goal of my research is to see any program or any education method to reduce racial bias in young children. Chan grew up in China, a largely homogenous society with very little exposure to other races. It wasn't until she was in graduate school that she met a black person, in this case, several classmates from Cameroon. Her friendship with those students and learning about the discrimination they faced in China sparked her interest in racial bias. And you might be surprised that when I first 
see a uh, person of African origin. It was just several years ago, and uh, I did not uh, avoid it. I approached, and I made friends with them. I know their stories, and they shared their experience in China with me. Um, so I think that experience um, got me interested in why they've experienced those prejudice or discrimination in China, especially those uh, biases. Some of them are very explicit. So, for example, when they go to a restaurant, people there will stare at them and uh, they will gesture at them at the, in public in a restaurant. So those experiences make me think, why does that happen? And in China, why Chinese people, they will express so explicitly to another group of people those negative attitudes, those negative prejudices, and even discrimination at behavioral level. Um, and as a child psychologist or developmental psychologist, I'm very interested in the early emergence of that phenomena. In My Skin is a production of the PRIDE program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development in Early Education. PRIDE is part of the University of Pittsburgh Office of Child Development. Thank you to the W.K. Kellogg Foundation and Hillman Family Foundations for making this episode possible. Qian has long been acutely aware of China's homogeneity. And because of that, she didn't talk about race much growing up. It wasn't until she left China to pursue her Ph.D. in Toronto that she began to understand how her own racial identity was perceived by others. So when I was in a church in Toronto several years ago, that's actually the very first month I, I was in Toronto. So I, I, I got a question from a friend in the church. So she asked me, Kitty, Miao, do you play any instrument? Then I asked why you asked this question. And then, then she said, oh, all Chinese people play instruments. So that's the moment I feel like, oh, Chinese people, they're associated with playing instruments. Just like when people ask me, are you good at math? Because, because people think Asian people should be good at math. That's why they ask this question, because they have this assumption in their mind. And that's the moment when I got asked this question. I realized that, oh, there are this type of associations in people's minds that's associated with being Asian or being Chinese. In the United States, establishing a baseline for bias with children is difficult. Though cities and regions can be vastly different, Generally, we have a pretty diverse society, with different races living and interacting with each other, particularly compared to countries like China. Finding children in the United States who haven't been exposed to other races, either in person or through media, would be very difficult. In China's homogenous society, Qian saw opportunity. If Chinese children are generally surrounded by other Chinese people, and not people of other races, maybe that's the perfect environment to study bias. So you, it's so hard to imagine children at such a young age without any contact with a person that's non-Chinese. But they still, at this young age, they hold a negative bias against 
other people. So that could speak to some factors why originally people have racial biases. Because for someone you never meet, you never talk to, you never know about the person, why would you have this this uh, implicit racial bias against that person, against that group? So we have this factor called in-group preference. So the mere categorization of people, so for example, Asian people and, for example, white people, they look different. And children from very young, they prefer things that look similar to themselves. They have a very early on development of this in-group preference. They prefer something look similar and uh, familiar to, to them. So that's their own group because they constantly see each other on a daily situation at school, in a public place, in a park. So those are the groups, the Chinese group are the groups they know and they are familiar with. However, non-Chinese groups, they, they, that's, that's new to them. That's not familiar to them. So they have this in-group preference from very early young age. That in-group preference that Qian described leads Chinese children to prefer Chinese people over white people, black people, and other races equally at a young age. But as they grow older, their preferences don't stay the same. So I have a very interesting study. Uh, study the development of Chinese people's attitudes towards black people and towards white people. So it's very interesting. From very young age, preschool age, Chinese children showed similar level of biases against black people and against white people. Because for them, for Chinese kids, both groups are out, out other race groups, so they hold similar um, biases against two groups. However, interestingly, when they grow older, their biases against black people remain stable and strong. However, their implicit bias against white people declined and trend to neutrality. So what that tells me is that socialization, especially media exposure or, or parenting, along with their age, might create some information that's kind of embedded in their mind, shaping their implicit racial bias development. So Chan and others had established that the biases existed. Now she had to come up with a solution. Her hope was that children's beliefs are malleable. They are just beginning to form, so maybe interrupting negative formations and reducing the implicit biases is possible. And we'll get to that in a second. But before we understand what the solution actually is, we need to understand a few ideas behind Chen's work. So then I want to talk about a very famous psychological phenomenon. It's called, it's called other race effect. So what, what's other race effect? It, it simply means that people usually they're better at remember and recognizing other people from their own racial background. And it, it's very hard for them to differentiate people from another racial background. I will give you one example I experienced myself. So several years ago, when I first landed in Toronto, because that's the very first city I landed, that's a non-Chinese city. That's the very first time I, went, I go abroad for my PhD program. And then the moment I landed in Toronto airport, I immediately feel like, every white person looks very similar and it's very hard to differentiate them. 
Then I ask myself, why that happened to me? Is that happened to everyone? Is it happen? Is it because of my experience growing up in China? And、uh, there are so many literature suggesting that. Yes, indeed, because you don't have the early experience with non-Chinese people, so you lose the ability. I lose the ability to differentiate and recognize people that are non-Chinese. And there is a very famous baby study talking about this. Babies from very young, they can differentiate any groups,、uh, three months of age. However, when they grow older, six months of age and eight and nine months of age. They can only so they can only recognize people from their own racial background. So Asian babies can only recognize Asian people, and then white babies can only differentiate white white people. So that's called perceptual memory because we lose the ability due to the lack of experience with non with with other groups. So we lose this ability. Okay, now for the solution. Chan's idea is that if you can give children the chance to see people of different races, and to make each of those people unique, maybe that can reduce bias. So this makes me think whether giving them enough of those individuating experience, or what I call the recognition ability, whether that's going to change their racial attitudes. What if I can differentiate differentiate those other race groups? I can remember who is who. Whether that, what I call perceptual training, can make a difference. So that leads to my uh, entire uh, line of research about bias intervention. So the intervention I created is called perceptual individuation. So the idea is that to teach children to remember and to to recognize who is who. Adam is Adam, and Adam looks like this, and Adam has different hobbies. Instead of just teaching kids, Adam is a black person, and that's it. To be clear, this Adam very much a white person. So I really want to push children to think beyond the mere categorization, the mere black versus white versus Asian, but to think more about the person, those individualized traits and characters, such as names, such as hobbies. Such as everyone's unique personalities, to give them more information about the person, about the individual, to end and to lead to a reduction of implicit bias. So I have conducted studies in China,、uh, in Canada, talking about how、uh, individuation could reduce children's implicit racial bias against other race groups. And so far, some of the results are very promising. I'm currently working with another professor from UCH,、uh, from UCSD to develop this foam app because we really wanted to create a very engaging and game-like app to actually engage our children to let them play on a daily daily basis. For example, at home with their parents to to create a more long-term effect to reduce their implicit bias. The idea of individuation versus exposure is a key factor in Chan's work. It's something that I think a lot about as it relates to media. There's a big difference between having a black character simply appear on a page or screen versus having that character have a backstory, feelings, and motivations. Think about the movie Black Panther. It wasn't important simply because it featured a predominantly black cast. It was because those characters were allowed to have a full depth. In breadth of feeling and emotion, you got to see them as individual characters 
rather than only by the color of their skin? Yes. So uh, I have one specific study talking about this question, whether exposure is enough to reduce implicit racial bias. And the answer is no, because I compared the condition of exposure. So children merely exposed to people from different racial backgrounds, or let's say specifically from, for example, Asian background. And another group, they do individuation. So individuation involves more cognitive process and also more involving. It's actually very hard for children to actually remember different persons because those groups are some of the group people like me. For example, for, for, for Asian people grown up in China, we, we don't have the ability to easily recognize white person or black person because we for so long lose the ability to individuate them. We tend to categorize. And in psychology, we know that categorization itself creates bias. And that's the whole idea of why exposure sometimes is not enough. Because our mind is lazy. Our brain is lazy. The default setting is to categorize because that's more efficient. That's what we do in our daily lives. We tend to categorize people. That's, that's to help us to make quick judgment. You know, in an employment setting, you know, when you read a resume, you probably only have one or two minutes for that resume, then make a quick decision. In legal system, the same. You probably only have uh, several minutes or or several hours to make a very huge, a death or not death of um, judgment. So how to make fast and quick decision? You have to based on several information and for a long line of research suggesting that categorization itself is a very efficient way how we human beings organize our world. We organize tables with tables together then chairs with chairs together, monitors with monitors. That's how we see the world. We, we tend to categorize. And for people, it's the same thing. We tend to categorize based on which language they speak. Do they have accent? What cultural background? Were they dressed? Dressed like Asian or just like, uh, just like another culture? Something like that. Based on those categories, we make decisions. And individuation is different. Individuation... Yes, we do see categories. That's the first thing probably in our mind. There are so many neuropsychology researchers suggesting that our brain automatically do categorization. We automatically de detect a race in less than 100 milliseconds. That's so fast. And the individuation pushes people to think more, think more about other types of dimensions, other information. That's mere exposure cannot do. Because mere exposure, if you just just see something, you're gonna follow what your brain is 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 um, kind of used to do. That's the default setting of categorization. This individuation versus exposure idea shows very real signs of progress. Two months after undergoing the individuation training that Chian discussed, students were still showing reduced signs of bias. While it's far too early to know how long these effects might last in the future, the early signs are promising. But the key question I had for Chen was this. How could this research apply to confronting biases held by children in the United States? Yeah, um, yeah, that's also a question I ask myself when I moved to the U.S. Because as you mentioned, um, race or race-related 
context of race-related problems are very different in different countries, especially in the U.S. because of political reason, because of historical reason, and or sort of policy influence, immigration policy, or even you know like different presidents, different cultural environment, social policy. There are so many factors going on, and it's so hard to actually disentangle these different factors. We cannot just say that oh my intervention can reduce bias and that's it. It has to be a, a package of things. So in the intervention package, my approach is just one piece in the package that's taking from the cognitive psychology, developmental psychology perspective. Because that's what I found could possibly work. That's the cognitive approach. And also, as you mentioned, there are so many cultural differences. Um, Chinese people, they might because China is so homogeneous. All my participants are Chinese, but in the U.S., it's different. The dynamics, the dynamics are different. The social status, the majority minority status is different. So there are so many things going on, and、uh, it's so different this problem.、Um, that's that's part of the reason why. I also took other people's approach. For example, people from sociology department, their approach about you know institutionalized racism and how that's going to play a role in different、um, in different decision making and judgments. So I think it's a very complicated question. And、uh, psychologists, I as a psychologist, I'm taking my approach to kind of tackle into this question. And obviously, psychologists, social policy, and every field needs to talk to each other and borrow each other to 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 answer this very big and hard question. Chan's approach may be just one piece of the intervention package, but it's one that should give us some hope. The more I've researched implicit bias, the more daunting thinking of potential solutions has become. It's easy to become resigned to the fact that we live in the United States. Which is inherently a racist society, and we can only do so much to mitigate these effects. But talking with Chin gave me some hope. There are potential solutions out there, signs that we can counteract these ideas before they become ingrained and build that intervention package. Enacting those solutions, though, requires us to do the work. We have to examine our own biases, think about what they are, where they came from. Think about scenarios in which the children that you care for may be exhibiting signs of bias, and instead of simply watching a movie with a black character or seeing a different race in a book, think about whether or not that character has a full story or is just a token gesture. It can be hard work, but it's necessary if we're going to combat the racial bias affecting children. This is the final episode of our four-part series on how racial bias affects children. You can find every episode of In My Skin, as well as more info about the Pride program, at racepride.pit.edu. In My Skin is produced and written by me, Adam Flango, with help from Pride Director Aisha White, Pride Director of Engagement Medina Jackson, Pride Administrative Assistant Katie Carney, and Office of Child Development Director Shannon Wallace. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. 
Pride is part of the University of Pittsburgh Office of Child Development in Pitt's School of Education. I want to thank everyone at Pitt who helped make this podcast possible.